0: Happy New Year and welcome back to the Archives Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Mireille Valindo. Today we bring you part four of a six-part documentary series on the history of the Old Town School of Folk Music, told through the voices and songs of the people who were there. If you haven't yet listened to the first half of this series, I recommend going back and catching up before listening any further. By the early 1980s, folk had become a four-letter word, and it was unclear if and how the Old Town School fit into this new decade. The place was nearly empty, yet no less full of charm, when Jim Hirsch took the reins as executive director.
1: As far as the building at 909 West Armitage, it was a disgusting, dangerous, um, I mean, it was like sort of an open toilet, basically. I'm Skip Lant. I am Jim Hirsch, and my relationship to Skip Lant is he's a former colleague of mine. My first experience
2: at the school was walking into it in, I think, about 1979, I think this was before uh, your tenure, and and, and, uh, having... A wonderful, welcoming experience. Welcoming by by uh, warm, friendly people. End uh, by a cloud of dust. Hmm. The uh, as you may remember uh, uh, from uh, maybe when you first came to the Armage location, there was an old couch there where they would throw the readers on them, and uh, every time a new reader would arrive, a new puff of dust would come up. And uh, contrast that to the time when uh, uh, when you moved on from the old town school and. The Armidale location was a a bright, uh, up refurbished place. We had the we had the Hill Library, uh, and rather than the I don't know a couple hundred students, I suppose when uh, when I first came, now there were I think five or six thousand. How
1: did this all come about? It was probably in 1976 or 77 when I first got there and set up an interview, and I be I was hired to be a teacher, so that was my first exposure to old town school of folk music and um like you i found an organization full of incredibly welcoming and talented people doing a style of music that just you know really resonated yeah. a great deal with me and and i loved and so that's how i i started my career and and i remember as a teacher there was no air conditioning in the building uh. and we would do classes in july sometimes and the students would literally start weeping weeping, because it was so uncomfortable and like they were just so miserable. And, and so the funny story is, is when we finally decided uh, a number of years later, after I became executive director, which happened in 1982 to renovate the building, people said, oh, no, don't change anything. And I'm thinking, well, wait, you know, like the fact that the bathrooms smell like there's a dead person underneath the floorboards. And like, you can't, you know, inhabit this building like during the summer months, you don't want to change that. So it was just, it was hysterical. But the building was funky, old, dilapidated. And as it turned out, it actually literally was on the verge of collapse because when we did do the renovation, our architect, Fritz Biederman, went and they had an inspection of the floor joists on the main floor and they were (laughs) hanging by a thread, so... That was uh, that was the wonderful building at 909 West Armitage. If,
2: if I can add to a little part of the description, because this is uh, this was was part of the charm of the place. In the in the men's room, there was something that looked like a trough for feeding pigs, <laughs> which men would would line up and use. <laughs> yes, it made the bathrooms at Wrigley
1: Field look <laughs> posh by comparison. Uh, so you started as a as a teacher. Yeah, I actually started teaching at Armitage, and ironically, nobody actually told me like the old town school teaching method so i got i got fired <laughs> and but instead of like getting rid of me they moved me off to a branch that was at that point was located in skokie at what was then called maine music or something like that so i got basically sent to the uh to the suburbs and and taught there and then finally somebody showed me how to teach and i became pretty good at it and then they brought me back downtown and uh so while i was out in in skokie they actually invited me to start doing some administrative work, and that was really the beginning of my transition from being a teacher and a performer into a more administrative um, direction. And then we moved from the Skokie location to a location uh, on uh, Noy Street in Evanston, Um, and and that's when I became the director of the Evanston branch and then had full administrative responsibility reporting directly to Ray Tate, um and you know that's how I kind of progressed through the ranks and was poised to uh, <laughs> to take on the reins of the entire organization when uh, the board decided to make a change and that happened in 1982 <laughs> then chair of the board of directors, his name is Kenton Morris. Oh, he yeah. worked for oh, WGN yeah. Radio, great guy, one of my earliest mentors. And Kenton invited me to his house and he said, you know, Jim, if we decide to make a change, because the school was in dire straits. Oh, it was on the absolute, utter verge of total bankruptcy and, and being shut down. And Kenton said, "If if we decided to make a change, would you be interested? I was 28 years old. The things I didn't know could have filled, you know, like volumes and volumes. What was your degree in? My, well, I dropped out <laughs> after my sophomore year in college, so I didn't, I didn't graduate college. So my degree was in like playing guitar really well and much too fast. So they asked me, Kenton said, if we made a change, would you be interested? And I said, well, of course I would, <laughs> you know. Um, and then a couple weeks later, after that conversation. Kenton and the board decided to to make a change, and they offered me the job. Uh, I remember I was paid the princely sum of, uh, I think it was $18,000 a year was my starting salary. Um, And because I was still doing a lot of performing, I didn't even take all of it because uh, Old Town was, like I said, on the verge of bankruptcy, and occasionally we couldn't actually meet payroll. So I deferred salary. Off and on during the first six or eight months, while we started rebuilding the organization. So you were the logical candidate to to, to head the
2: uh, uh, head the school at, at that time. What? Uh, how many students were did the school
1: have? So the week that I walked in for the first time, and I will never forget it. It was uh, in May of 1982. There were the total um enrollment was about 175 students but to put that in context you know even like 3 or 4 years before the weekly enrollment was closer to a thousand students oh, really? a week so th- the decline had been precipitous and and it was brought on by a number of factors um a lot of it was just changing musical tastes but it was also you know that the organization was really undercapitalized so That was one of the problems. The other problem was that it was a non-profit organization that had never actually functioned as a nonprofit because everything was paid for by fees for service. In other words, it was 100% earned revenue. There was no contributed revenue. Uh So when I started, Uh one of the first things that I decided was, hey, we got to get on this gravy train of trying to get grants and, and donations. And I actually ushered in, Kind of the first organized fundraising effort in in the school's history, and I remember, you know, we early on we got some pretty large grants. We got like the Joyce Foundation came in at a pretty large number, and um, there were a few other foundations like MacArthur eventually started to fund Old Town School, and that bring it, brought in some pretty big chunks of money at a time when it was desperately needed.
2: The time this was happening, folk music itself as a as a uh, national uh, pastime was had, had kind of lost its original glimmer and people were still there were still folk acts moving around but this was not the this was not the heyday this was the this was a period basically of people having less and less interest in folk music. So how?
1: Yeah. How did you get the story across? How did you? Well, that's a great question. So basically, the order of operations for those who are not completely familiar with like the world of folk music is in the late '50s. You know, what was called the folk revival kind of began in earnest, and that ushered in artists like Bob Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary, and and basically this whole generation of artists who were playing acoustic music that was either directly or indirectly influenced by you know more traditional forms of music. And that kind of continued through most of the 60s. But when I came on the scene, like in the late 70s, it has sort of morphed into more of a singer-songwriter thing. So you ask the question, you know, how do we tell the story? And it was to me, it was less about telling the story, but trying to connect it to something that was meaningful to people. And so I remember very clearly, as I thought about like folk music and its relevance, I tried to recast it as more of like, we all have folk music in our background you know and if you look at any art form and you go far enough back it always traces back to a form of folk music or folk culture folk dance so i tried to create a more a, a, a much bigger tent
3: uh.
4: I'm Rick
2: Sherry. I'm proud to have been uh, the, uh, I don't know if I was the first teacher, but an early, at least an early teacher in, uh, in Rick Sherry's uh, uh, wonderful uh, career.
4: Uh, yes, in fact, you were, I think, my first teacher. Skip, I hadn't played taken a music lesson since I was like playing trumpet as a <laughs> freshman in high school. <laughs> so you were the start of this future of mine, believe it or not, in many ways. A very
2: major and important tradition at the school is people who come as as students, right, and then stay on as teachers. Yeah, in in both uh, in both cases. Yep. So yep. we have this amazing place where, at on one hand, you have people who come as in, in as complete beginners and become teachers. On the other hand, you have people who've been playing all their lives. And, and who are experts when they come here. So you get the high, you can find the, the highest level of education. And then people like you who've taken the full route from being, any, uh, being a beginner to now being really uh, outstanding in your field. I mean, I love your playing. No thank you. Occasionally I've tried to figure out how you do it, and I don't know. I've given up. <laughs> As a kid, I despised music lessons for their very formality. Uh in college, you know, in graduate school, I'd played a little banjo and done some folk singing, And, and when I came to Chicago, I listened to the uh, Midnight special. I wandered in here uh, in the, sometime in the late '70s, '76 to '79, uh, when they had a community, a community chorus that, hmm. uh, uh, and I'd done some choral uh, singing. I enjoyed that. Well, I got there, and I discovered they did folk songs. They did actual literal folk songs that people were singing, and we could do that as a choral. I thought, wow. A couple of years later, at some point, Mad Cat Ruth was teaching a, uh, a workshop, a one-day workshop here. Hmm. Uh, I, I, why I took the workshop, I don't know, because I'd really never liked harmonica. Yeah. I when I when I bought albums as a as a kid. I think the harmonica. I mean, I, I like vocals. I like to, I like the old time the jug band and the and the Dixieland vocals, but somehow it captured my interest. And then I took a class, two or three series with a um, person whose name I've been struggling to remember, but a young young guy, when he fell in love with a beautiful young in the class and they ran off and the way I tell the story I don't know if this is true or not but on the way out the door someone said wait a second hold on <laughs> who is going to teach your classes and he said, oh god I don't know I'm, I don't really have anybody terribly good <laughs> the, oh wait a second this is the Lant guy he's a he's a former teacher and he's, he's in education and you know he's, he's not bad so you know talk to Skip Lant so from 85 I think was when I started teaching <laughs> most associated in my mind with people becoming good players is passion. Right. <laughs> and right. That's, that's part of what you show in each of right. your, of your right. shows. I mean, right. you, you communicate that. Right. It, but And you can take that back to people who don't play at all. Right. If they really love music, what I tell people when they come into the classes is if I can find that song that is in your heart that you've got to find a way to get out <laughs> and right. express, right. then you can really play harmonica. you're gonna be able to learn to play harmonic and you're gonna yep. love it. And and that's the that's the secret. And that is so opposed to what people normally think of as as the educational process. Sure. They think of they think of it as, as a left brain process right. where, where you, you decide you're gonna do something, you, you get in this rigorous right. program and, and, and you're supervised and you're told what to do. Right. As opposed to and I think what this old town school represents is this is uh, a process of exploration based on on your feelings, based on your your on your your passion, your need to uh, to express yourself, and uh, uh, and that's I think the the source of um, the success here. It's not a little section of your life where you are going to study something. Right. It is it is is a pathway right. to a part of your life that can be at the center, not simply because you're a teacher, but simply because you're, you're a, one of the volunteers here. Right. Or you're someone who comes to
4: the uh, comes to workshops or comes to concerts. You know, um, coming in with a focus of wanting to learn an instrument even has just broadened everything. And, you know, leading me to, now I play old-time music, which when I started playing blues, I, I thought that was, <laughs> I didn't like that stuff at all. And, you know, hearing it here and just exploring it and having the availability to hear it, but also... You know, since I started here, I got married and have two kids, and they went through all the all, wiggle worms and everything. And I was here three days a week when I was teaching, bringing my kids to different lessons, and just all the stuff. Just going through that part of your growth, you know, it's just amazing. The big, the big umbrella that covers here, and also, you know, but also, um, I, you know, I don't teach here anymore, but I get to play here once in a while, so I get to come back and perform, and just socially, the there's there's so much to offer in terms of just people you want to be around, people you want to have fun with, people you want to do stuff with. It's its pretty amazing. You come here perhaps not knowing what you're going to
2: find, and you find a whole aspect of your life that uh, you had no idea was there. You're not only playing music, but you're meeting other people who play music, and you're becoming something that you don't even think of as a music community, but really it is, and it is a... Uh, it's a community that, that gives you more than you ever might have thought you could receive from
5: any place. This is Michael Miles, and I'm here with Skip Lant. We're both teachers at the Old Town School of Folk Music, and have both
2: been teachers for an extended period of time. I, decades, decades, decades. We don't count
5: years anymore, we just go by decades.
2: That's right. <clears throat> and uh, I came as a, a student in 1979 and uh, took various classes, and then at some point um, when the, my harmonica teacher left, by that time you were uh, program director, and you uh, you gave me the great uh, honor of hiring me as, a, as one of the teachers and during that time well, jim hirsch was executive director and your end was the program and really the community side of the school what 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 brought people together and and, uh, and hiring the teachers how did you find the school in the first place what brought you to the school
5: ray tate hired me as a teacher in 1979 i i uh, was actually a guitar player um, but I told Ray that I uh, could also teach the banjo <laughs> 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 because I figured they had enough guitar teachers and uh, and I could kind of play the banjo, not very well, but I but but I could do some and I had been playing ah. clawhammer style and and sure enough, Ray said, "Well, we don't have a clawhammer banjo teacher, and you're hired."
2: And what's most amazing about this, Michael, now you have become uh, not just an extraordinary performer, but a composer, an arranger, uh, a producer. You you expanded the horizons of what the banjo does and started because you came to the school and faked the idea that you could play the banjo. (laughs)
5: Jim was hired as executive director, he was, he was the only full-time employee, and he offered a half-time position of program director, $165 a week. I thought, I have a bunch of ideas, I could, I could take that and, and uh, try it out. September in 84 was when I began, probably 85 you know, was when, uh, about the time that I hired you, and Robbie Fulkes, he, he was another one that was one of the first people I hired. I think the school was poised to succeed. In Chicago, uh, my observation about the programming was that as I looked at it, it needed a fresh start. Jim was a fresh start because the school had been kind of on a downturn. And Jim Hirsch was a, he was an aggressive entrepreneur. And he 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 set me free uh, you know he saw in me someone w- who uh, had a creative spirit and a big imagination i was aggressive and i and i was great with people and i had the ability and uh, and the drive to go after things and he recognized that and he and he sort of said run with it you know and he gave me the freedom to do that and what i did was to like observed that Chicago was filled with some of the greatest musicians in the world. And they were out there. They were everywhere. And and what they needed was uh, an invitation, a face-to-face invitation to say, here we have this great resource in the city of Chicago, the Old Town School of Folk Music, which can be anything that we choose to make it. And so what I saw, my position was that I could create this musical community one by one. I inherited a group of teachers, they kind of trailed off, you know, and left. And I thought, I'm going to rebuild this musical community one person at a time. You were among them, Robbie was among them, and one by one, Uh, I created a new community of musicians, and and when I would interview people, uh, oftentimes I would know what they could do musically before I even talked to them. I wouldn't talk to you know I knew what they could do. I know whether or not you can play the guitar. I'm interested in whether you look me in the eye. I'm interested in what the experience is to be alone with you in a room. What's it like to be here with you? How do you talk to people? How do you communicate? What? How can you describe what matters to you? And what's it going to be like for another human being to be in a room alone with you? What's this like? Well, how do you talk? You know, what do you care about? How do you communicate what you care about? And what's that going to be like? And and how is that going to come across to the people who are going to be here walking through this building, putting down their hard earned money saying, show me how to play, show me how to be a musician. And I'm, And I'm going to put you in a room with this person who I know he can play. And now he's shown me that he or she can really communicate well about not only about how to play, but but th- that they have, they're a person of character. Like somebody like Elaine Moore. You walk into um, the classroom and you experience her aura. And yeah. her aura is like this stunning experience that changes people's lives. It's like, I thought I was taking a guitar class. And it wasn't just a guitar class. It was like, my life is different.
3: Just a closer walk with thee. Grant it, Jesus, if you please.
2: Elaine Moore is, is still teaching at the school and is one of the people responsible for one of the second halves, as is Mary Peterson, who was someone that you hired who had been a student.
5: And Elaine, Elaine answered a reader ad to, uh, for, a, for an administrative position. That's how she started at the school. And Mary was a student in Jimmy Tomasello's class. There was lots of, you know, the guitar world is full of, full of men, 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 right. men, boys, boys, you know, it was all right. these. And I, I needed some women to teach. And I remember watching Mary uh, introducing the song that the class was going to play and then uh, playing the guitar. And it's just Guitar One, you know, she's just Guitar One. And she just had this aura about her that was impressive to me. And I went up to her after the, after the class. After the performance, and I said "Hello mary I'm Michael. I'm the program director here, and I know you just finished Guitar one, but you're the kind of person that I think would be good for this place, and if you'd be willing, I'd like to help you become a guitar teacher here and that I don't know what year that was Mary'll have to tell you, but that was decades ago as well because yeah. now we count by decades right <laughs> and and Mary is one of the you know she's 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 one of the leading teachers of the old town school she's just a powerhouse a brilliant woman a great teacher she teaches guitar classes she teaches wiggle worm classes she teaches all these things and she uh, you know she's someone who matters
0: I got a letter from a-
5: we created the school, I called it the School of Planetary Dance. We had dance from around the world. We had uh, Jamaican dance. We had Irish step dance. We had, flamen- we had flamenco dance for the first time. We had uh, Afro-Caribbean dance. We had tap dancing.
6: My name is Reginald. McLaughlin, aka Reggio the Hoofer, uh, and Hoofer is a word that is used to identify a tap dancer that's a professional, okay? First, I'm from a large family. It was eight of us. It was five girls and I had two brothers. Usually after school, uh, my mother sent us to like more of a community center, and uh, my sisters were taking tap dancing there. Mm-hmm. And usually at the end of the uh, program, they have a big showcase. And when I saw a Tap for the first time, it, it just fascinated me. The click clackety sound and the rhythm and the turns and the spins, you know. I just loved it. I just loved what I saw. And, and I would just say love at first sight. And it was just something that just stuck with me that I wanted to do. I got sidetracked to playing a bass guitar. I was traveling as a professional musician because my older brother got a job playing at a record company here in Chicago called Brunswick Records. Mm-hmm. And one time uh, what happened was um, my brother and them, they were going out on tour with the singer. And the day before they was supposed to go, the bass player got sick. And, and, and he said, hey, man, my little brother know how to play. I could show him the stuff tonight, and he can go with us. So they had no other choice. They said, well, get him, man. Just get him. And I went out on the road um, with one of the acts from the record company. And he was so uh, flattered by how well I played so young that he went back and Told the president of the company, which was Carl Davis at the time, "Man, this guy could play. He's this," and he was just bragging on me. So they gave me an ultim- uh, ultimatum: either I could stay and travel with the different acts that needed a musician with the company, or I could go to school. So I dropped out of school as a sophomore and started traveling with all the different groups for the record company. But then uh, that. Uh, dream of always wanting to do that, never left. And then it was something when I started tapping that I pushed myself into doing. My main mentor was Ernest Brownie Brown, uh, who I danced with until he was 92 years old. He came back to re- uh, Chicago to retire, and I was introduced to him through his granddaughter. And I started coming over to his house and get him to show me things. And then later on I found out, like, oh my God, this guy is one of the pioneers in the tap world. He was my mentor. He gave me a lot of stories and history of this art form and how it got started as a true American folk dance. You know what I'm saying? Of how it derived here from the talking drum of Africa. And when Africans were brought here and they were banned from beating the drums, they began to beat these rhythms out with their feet and body percussive. And later on, this developed into this art form and was brought onto a stage in minstrel shows. When I first started, tap dancing was an outdated dance that they didn't even do anymore. People thought I was nuts for even want to learn or to say I want to be a tap dancer. And after I started getting a little better, you go to an agency, man, they will turn you around right at the door like you was nuts. Tap dancers, man, nobody do that. We haven't booked a tap dancer since 1945. Get out of here. So the only way you can perfect your craft or make any money was you had to create your own opportunity for yourself, which meaning you was I was dancing in the subway, you know, street performing. <laughs> Some years back, uh, I guess in the early 90s, Old Town was a co-sponsor with Columbia College, and they put on a tap program called Chicago on Tap. And they just had a promotional show at Old Town on Armitage, and I came to it, and then I was approached with Leela Petrulio, who was teaching there at the time, and her mother and her, they were kind of t- as a teen. She asked me what i like to take her place teaching at Old Town, because they were going back to Paris. I said, sure. And I danced at the showcase, and Michael Miles was there, and he, he saw me dance, and She introduced me to him as her replacement. He said, no problem, and hired me on the spot. And also, I was the only teacher at the time. And when I started, I had two classes, which was a a tap one for adults and tap two. And then later on, I created some kids tap classes. And then it just started gradually growing from there. During the years I've been here, you, you just kind of develop a following of students. I have students who have been with me some like 10 years. They develop into like your tap family.
5: One of the things in particular was the Chicago Masters Series, because Chicago being a place where there were all these great musicians everywhere. And the Chicago Masters Series was people who were here in Chicago who had kind of a a national reputation, but they were locals. And so over the course of the years, the Chicago Masters Series featured people like Johnny Frigo playing the violin, Michael Smith Teaching guitar, Fareed Hawk, John Rice on the guitar, Don Sternberg playing the mandolin, Jackie Allen, Alphonse Ponticelli. You know, Sugar Blue on the harmonica. Sugar Blue played on five of the Rolling Stones records, and Sugar Blue was somebody he played at the Wise Fool's Pub, and and it was, it was a perfect example of. I just went to the Wise Fools Pub and I waited for him to finish his set. And I said, "You know, can you? Would you consider coming to the Old Town School?" Well, of course he would, because he'd heard of the Old Town School, and he, you know, he knew of the place, but nobody'd ever asked him. And I said, "Can you come and do this?" And he was delighted. What I liked about that is, like, then there's credibility. Liz Carroll on the violin. Whenever any of these great bands from t- the from uh, Ireland come to Chicago, they all want to come and learn from Liz Carroll, who just happens to live in the Chicago area, or Jimmy Keane on the accordion. Oh. Same way. These are phenomenal players who, who just happen to be here.
7: I am Mike Austin, and I am here with my friend Liz Carroll. Uh,
3: Right, and I'm Liz Carroll.
7: Liz, here we are. I I know you well enough to know that this is going to make you really uncomfortable, but I'm just going to list off a few of the amazing things that you've done. All-Ireland champion, twice as a kid and a young adult, two years in a row. Recipient of a National Heritage Fellowship from the National Endowment of the Arts. Nominated for a Grammy in 2010, the first American-born traditional Irish musician to receive that honor. And then in 2011, you won Ireland's Most Significant Traditional Music Prize for composition. And you were the first American-born composer to be honored with that award. Not bad, as the saying goes, for a girl from the south side of Chicago.
3: (laughs) (laughs) God, it sounds good. (laughs) You're right, I'm cringing. I was in the fray immediately. You were like day how old one, when get, you get played in your
7: first session?
3: Well, I'd say I was nine. Okay. But I started the fiddle when I was nine. There's not much of a person that's, dead. all these Suzuki players now are playing when they're two and a half.
7: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
3: They need somebody to bring them, don't they? Yeah. yeah. But when you were nine, you had a, you had a bit of cop on. And sitting down with other people that play is free. And it was for me, too. And I sat down with this one and that one, great players. And the fact is, if you heard a tune that you loved, you could say, could you please tape that for me slower? Or is there a book that that tunes in? So, I mean, what I loved about not having lessons for Irish music uh, is that um, it was totally self-driven. I didn't have parents that were begging me to get to someplace in my music. There was no place to get to.
7: Let's talk about the Old Town School and your past uh, with the school. Uh, I'm guessing you never had any lessons there. I'm wondering if you've ever taught there. I know you've performed there a lot, too, so yeah. the only question is, like, what's your teaching experience You there? know,
3: my, my, uh, my teaching experience, you're exactly right. I didn't take any lessons there. Uh, I'm not even sure if there was anybody teaching Irish music specifically, um in my early years uh-huh. but along the way um you know i did start running into that old time american music group that was at the old town and uh-huh. uh, at some point and uh, it might have been jim hirsch but uh, whoever was there just asked about uh, well what about um you teaching some irish music here
7: and it was group classes or was it individuals?
3: Exactly. It was group classes and okay. it was just kind of come in and, uh, and I just met the most, you know, fabulous group of, of folks. It really, my, I think my first experience there was probably all adults, maybe one or two younger kids, but, uh, really mostly adults. So it was people that, uh, you know, you could pal around with too afterwards, uh, uh go out even and do things with but uh, they were checking out the music Um, I don't know how desperately they had been searching for Irish music at that point I think most people were just like let's just try this out Uh I think they were they enjoyed taking classes and some of them definitely enjoyed it enjoyed old-time music and bluegrass and maybe some other world music and had dabbled maybe with Irish
7: so. Do you have a sense of if any of those people stuck with it in any way? Even if they didn't you know, go on to be working musicians? Do Yeah, they...
3: I think every once in a while I run into somebody and they go, I was in your class at the Old Town School. And they're invariably still playing music in some fashion, even if it's just at home. And uh, what's nice is that uh, mostly they have a, you know, like, uh, they don't have a vendetta. <laughs> against me after, you know, right, anything right. could. Have. I mean, <laughs>
0: who, a lot of times knows? I
3: would just walk into the class and I just would kind of deal with what was there because it was a mixed bag. Sometimes yeah. it was as many as, like, 15 people. And you, I just was going off of my experience more than I was having an agenda. You know, I would kind of work up an agenda on the train ride. <laughs>
7: okay.
3: <laughs> but they were very easygoing about that, and I think it meant that you could address individuals and, and something could become a part of that evening, uh, just because somebody brought it up. And we kind of made a pact, I think at the beginning of whatever, maybe 10 week run of getting together on, let's say a Tuesday night, um, that, uh, nothing was too simple. Nothing was too hard. And that wherever you were, it was going to be good for you to hear anything and everything. So people were, uh, Uh (laughs) warned but I found that most people were happy oh good yeah so I'll run into people still and they'll go hey I still play and I I remember that and I enjoyed it (laughs)
8: Paul Tyler, fiddle teacher at the Old Town School of Folk Music for the last uh, 26 years. I actually started working for the Old Town School of Folk Music in 1988, right after the building on Armitage was rehabbed. And in the rehab, they came up with space for a resource center and a museum. And I was hired as the curator for, what was the job title? Curator for Collections and Exhibitions. And we set up the resource center and um, made it available for people to come in view concert videos uh, videos of concerts that we had put on in in the concert hall and uh, we gathered a collection of recordings from various places with a tiny little room (laughs) and uh, the museum room was uh, the little square room inside from that and and, uh, had a few exhibitions in there the first thing i'd really did was put together a exhibition on the history of the five-string banjo. We used our collection of banjos that had been donated to the school way back in the 60s by uh, a local doctor, a collection of largely Stuart vintage banjos. And I expanded it to not just tell the story of the Stuart company, but of uh, the banjo coming from Africa and taking shape in the, particularly African-American communities in the, in the U.S.
2: Peaches and summertime, apples in fall. I don't get girl I love, don't want none at all. Shady girl, my true love, shady girl, I say. Shady girl,
6: my
4: true love, bound to go away.
8: Before I started at the Old Town School, I, I became really committed to learning about the music from the area that I came from, and so I was collecting fiddle music in, in my home state of Indiana. I was good friends with a, with a guy who was doing the same thing in Michigan, and I was good friends with, with Chirp Smith and, and the Indian Creek Delta boys who were doing the same thing here in Illinois, and, and of, of course, you know, I was the first fiddle teacher for group fiddle classes at the old town school and then Steve Rosen came on to teach fiddle and banjo and Steve played with chirps and we you know, we had all this in common. So we started teaching a whole lot of tunes that we would call Midwestern. Most of our students today would play tunes and they might be able to say, Yeah, this one's kinda of Midwestern and you can come up with some stylistic things that might suggest that. There's no hard and fast categories and we have expanded the idea of what old time fiddling is to be not just southern and there's you know i love southern fiddling fiddling from fiddle players i know who come from the south and many of the ones that are our favorites are not from appalachia at all but they're from mississippi or piedmont in in virginia one of my favorites is from closer to washington dc than he is closer to the mountains but uh, you know my biggest influences have been fiddlers that i met they were elders when i was young and they're all gone now, but you know, they're from, from the Midwest. So we've done a lot to, to show that, uh, that our traditional music is, is not a marginal thing at all, but it's been widespread.
0: been the archives tune in again next thursday for a special mini episode featuring an interview and music from a couple of surprise guests one of whom was recently nominated for a grammy if you like what we do please support us by taking a moment to review the archives on itunes follow us on facebook or just share this podcast with a friend it takes just a minute but it's a huge help i want to thank everyone you heard on this podcast today With special thanks to Raul Fernandez for contributing editing and to Skip Lant for his time and efforts as interviewer and interviewee. All the conversations featured in this episode were gathered in collaboration with National Oral History Project, StoryCorps. To listen to more excerpts, hear full interviews, and learn more about this ongoing partnership, go to oldtownschool.org slash storycorps. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-O-R-P-S. Check out the episode notes for detailed information on all the recordings. If you'd like to hear more from folklorist Paul Tyler, listen to episode 11 for music and a conversation about the origins of the folk song, Cindy. I'm your host, Maree Valindo. Thank you for listening. Just the two of us,
6: we hold each other's arms Baby, now win just a little Lose, just a little Sometime had a blues a little, but baby That's the glory of love.